Hello, my name is Larry Hiles. I'm the preaching minister at the Milford Church of Christ. Thank you for taking the time to watch or listen to this message. Please feel free to share it with friends. Also, if it's impacted your life in any way, reach out to us and let us know how. If you live in the Centerburg or Mount Vernon area, we'd love to have you be our guest. We're located at 3648 Johnstown Road in Centerburg, Ohio. We look forward to the opportunity of meeting you. Good morning. I'm happy that you're all here this morning. Uh, you can tell that I'm preaching today uh, for the simple fact that the comments are already coming out. Uh, Tom uh, told me that Walt said there's 44 here today, and so that's pretty good for Tim preaching. And Nelson said he tried to leave, but Rick wouldn't let him. So, so I suggest we just bar the doors right now. So, uh, Tom had mentioned on the way uh, coming back there that he hadn't done the opening in quite a while, and so he was just kind of off his game a little bit. And, and I'm going to be honest with you, I'm a little off my game today because uh, I haven't preached in, oh man, it's been probably a year, year and a half. It's been a while. Uh, so uh, we're going to go extra long today, I think, maybe. We'll see. Okay. Well, Larry has taken a little bit of time to relax and recharge this, uh, this weekend, so you did end up with me. And it has been a long time since I've offered up a sermon, and I didn't realize how long and how rusty, uh, or how long it's been and how rusty I am at, at doing this and putting things together. Uh, the quick sermon uh, formula of the past uh, was not really fresh in my mind anymore. When I used to preach on a regular basis, it seemed pretty simple. A couple hours, boom, it was done. And uh, I had my three points, and we're out of there. So, but that wasn't the case this time. Larry had asked me way back in July uh, if I would preach, and I said yes. And I thought of the scripture immediately, right away, and I thought about things that I wanted to say long before I even put anything into the computer. And uh, it, it's just been a long, long struggle. When, when Larry uh, began his uh, sermon series on Ephesians, um, and that was a few weeks, three weeks ago, I guess, and, and I jokingly told him after the first uh, sermon that he did, it was about uh, being in Christ, and I said he was stepping on my toes because he touched on some of the very same things that I was going to say. And after his sermon last week, it was on faith and grace, and things got real, folks. I told him that he stomped all over my sermon, <laughs> things that I had planned to say. I think he even jumped up and, up and down a couple times for good measure. Uh, in, in fact, he used a few phrases that I had already written down, so you're going to hear him again, so get used to it. So. <laughs> I thought to myself, well, God's Holy Spirit is working again because the Bible often repeats the same message over and over again when, we, when you need to add emphasis. Uh, you're going to hear a similar message today uh, to Larry's last message, but it's not going to be quite as polished. Okay? Larry's been doing this for a while. Uh, but know what I have written down is inspired in me by the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's just not... Uh, not to entertain, it's, it was actually in, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Uh, the trouble is that I just have to deliver it correctly. So that's where the wild card comes in. I'm going to apologize in advance. Uh, today's lesson is not spiritual milk. 
It's mostly spiritual meat. The verse I chose is, in Galatians is very complex. And I could have spun off about six or seven different ver- uh, sermons off of that one verse. But you're going to get the full shotgun blast within the next two, uh, uh, half hour. So, uh, a little caution, I'm going to touch on some truths that, uh, uh, and they're going to be very brief in what I say. But I don't want you to focus on what I did not say. Uh, if you get offended or upset by anything that I do say, speak with me, uh, come talk to me, we, and we can just reason together, we can look at scripture, and, and I can tell you from, from my point of view. Uh, the complexity of what I say is not always explained in a very brief uh, um, sermon that I'm going to deliver up here, or even in a very brief conversation. With that said, uh, let's go ahead and uh, go to our Father in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we're grateful for this uh, wonderful opportunity to come here to worship you today. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you for the people in this room. We thank you for your, their hearts, and we just thank you for your word, Father. Father, we thank you for the inspiration that you give each and every one of us. We pray, Father, that as we open up your word today, that you would help us to understand and help us to grow closer to you and help us to put you in the proper place, Father, because you are Lord of all. And we ask that you would just give us the the strength and the ability to to understand you better and grow closer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So today I'm going to start with a little bit of an English lesson. Most of you probably think that English is my second language because I don't speak it very well as my first language. Um, But nevertheless, the first question I have for you is can anyone tell me what an oxymoron is? Quiet, Tom. And this is not a rhetorical question. Can anybody tell me what that is? I need a little bit of uh, participation. Joel's got his dictionary out. All right. Yes. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Uh, and Tom said it, it's the, uh, an oxymoron is a statement that pairs two opposing words, like, and I'm going to give you a list of them here, awfully good, bittersweet, jumbo shrimp, walking dead, civil war, true lies, even odds, crash landing, freezer burn, and my favorite, Military intelligence. I'm a military Air Force. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right. You hear these uh, these oxymorons very often, don't you? You've you've all heard them, I'm sure. Uh, and you don't give it a second thought when you hear them, right? There are two opposite words. They have opposite meanings, but you don't give it a second thought because you have a basic understanding. There's it, it, it conveys some message to you, and, and it. It's a concept that you, you can make sense out of it, right? Uh, well, oxymorons are a form of a paradox, but they're not quite the same. A paradox is not necessarily two opposing words. Uh, it's best defined as two opposing ideas or statements 
that seem absurd together, but when you uh, put them in the same sentence or paragraph, they, they kind of start making sense. If you take a closer look at them, uh, the statements might be proved to be true or correct. Uh, some examples of paradoxes are, it takes money to make money. The more you learn, the more you understand how little you know. The only constant is change. The more you fail, the more likely you are to succeed. This one you might have to think about. Nobody, nobody goes to the restaurant because it's too crowded. And better not go near the water until you learn how to swim. Okay, they're opposite ideas, but they have some truth to them. Now, why did we have this English lesson today? The reason is because the scripture that uh, I chose today is loaded with paradoxes. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Galatians 2.20. And I've been accused of having a few favorite uh, verses from scripture, and I always, like to, uh, I always like to teach. And this is definitely one of them. Normally, I read from an ESV Bible, but this particular boy, uh, verse and my points today are relying on the King James Version. So it is up on the screen, and I'm going to read it. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Now there's three paradoxes in this verse that we're going to look at today. So let's take the, the first passage. Cute, Tom. There you go. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Now, obviously, uh, they're opposing ideas, right? Uh, how can I be crucified with Christ and still live? We know that Christ hung on the cross. He was buried and resurrected on the third day. There's no doubt that Christ was crucified. I wasn't alive when that happened. Neither were you. And hanging on that Roman cross would be something that I think we would all remember, right? So what does crucified with Christ mean? What does it mean to us? I don't believe Paul was lying when he wrote this verse. This verse. Uh, but it must mean there's some type of death involved. Now, we weren't raised like Lazarus. Uh, we're still walking around. We're talking to the many friends that we've uh, known and loved all our lives. Uh, so I don't understand how we can be crucified with Christ if we're still walking around, right? Uh, so it's apparently that we haven't physically died because we're still breathing and many of us have our appetites and our daily needs. So what's Paul trying to tell us? Well, for answers, uh, let's check out some other writings of Paul and we can usually answer scriptural questions with other scripture. Uh, turn to Romans 6, 6. We know that the old self was crucified with, with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. The death that we experienced by being united in the death of Christ is the nature of the old Adam. The old sinful nature has been put to death. From God's perspective, we have received a new nature. This doesn't mean that 
we aren't aware of the old Adam in us. It doesn't mean that we don't still struggle with that person wanting to come out. Uh, every now and then, it, it comes out and it wins. But we've received a new and a better nature from God. The new nature is one God recognizes and deals with. The old nature is dead to him. We're going to talk about the new nature a little bit more in depth when we get to our, our next paradox. But suffice to say that if we're led by the Holy Spirit, the old nature is no longer in charge. Christ's crucifixion basically did a few things for us. Uh, and I think Romans 6.6 6 talks about that uh, very well, summarizes that. There isn't enough uh, time to read all the scripture to explain uh, Christ's sacrifice in detail. Uh, we would need to ro read Romans in its entirety in order to get a grasp on that, and we would barely be scratching the surface. But mainly in crucifying the old nature, we have been set free from law and sin. We died to law and sin. When we were without the new nature and uh, living strictly in our old nature, we were sinners. Now, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. That has been uh, carried down since the first sin. You see that a little more clearly when we talk about the law, but the point is that our old nature is a sinful nature. This sinful nature is the same nature passed down from Adam. The same nature is the one that Christ crucified on that cross. Colossians 2, verses 13 through 15. And you who were dead in your trespass and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our, all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Folks, the uh, blood of Christ shed on that cross is the very same blood that paid our sin debt. Not just our past sins, but our present sins and our future sins. And not only for us, but for the entire world. Now here's the catch. The blood of Christ paying for the sins of the entire world is only effective for those who believe. If you've not submitted your life to Christ and partaken of the free gift offered, your sins still remain. Your nature from Adam is alive and controlling you. You're still a slave to sin. And I might get a little bit of pushback on this, but you would still be a slave to the law. Christ said in Matthew 517 that he didn't come to abolish the law but he came to fulfill the law the law was given to the nation of Israel Israel for the Jewish people so we Gentiles were without the law but the law is still God's perfect standard the law was never meant to save us but it only had the power to condemn us it only had the power to show us our sin the law is now written on our hearts. So we know that without Jesus, we have no hope of meeting that perfect standard. As sinners in the old nature, 
we would have no excuse because we would know right from wrong. And we would know what sin is. But through Christ, he fulfilled the law for us by his grace through his death on the cross. Romans 5, 18 through 21. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul says again in Romans 7, verses 5 and 6, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions roused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Folks, we're under grace. We don't live under the law, but we only do that in Christ. If we're trying to bring back the law, if we're trying to serve the law, then we nullify grace. And that brings us to our next paradox. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. What does it mean that Christ lives in me? If he lives in me, what do I have to do? There's a lot of questions that are going to be coming from this. And uh, we'll, we'll get them all answered. But I want you to think about these questions as I ask them. There has to be some type of to-do list because Jesus was perfect. It is perfect. And we better live up to that perfection, right? We've heard it said that we must obey and follow all his commands. In fact, it's written in the New Testament several places. So which commands? Is there a comprehensive list somewhere? Are we back under the law? Now, does Christ living in me negate who I am? So all these are great questions. We're going to try and answer them. If we want Christ to live in us, we're going to have to let him live in us. First and foremost, we must recognize that we are not under the law, but under grace as we talked about in the last point. We don't have to do or earn anything. Christ has already done it for us. In fact, if we try to earn our way, we're turning away from the gift and seeking after another master. We're saying that Jesus Christ isn't enough for us. We're saying the blood of Jesus cannot pay for our sins, that we have to somehow earn it. We don't need to look any further than the next verse in uh, Galatians 2.21 to see what Paul says about grace and the righteousness and works. I do not nullify the grace of God, for it is righteousness. If, if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. He again writes in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. 
For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Folks, if we're living by checklist and we're living by rules, we've missed the mark. We have a new nature that is driven by the Holy Spirit. We're not under the law, we're not under rules, but we're under the new nature of God, who's given this to us as a gift. That means that we learn what pleases God. If we're doing it right, our desires will fall in line with God's desires. He made dead who I was by giving me this new spirit and a new heart. With that new nature, we would display the fruit of the Holy Spirit, described in Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Just as the bad spring cannot bring forth good water, a fig tree cannot produce apples, our new nature will bring forth good works, not evil. It will bring forth good works in love. Not good works for the sake of good works, but genuine love for others. Now hear me on this. This is not a free pass to go out and do whatever you will and whatever you want. But if we want to do the good things that please God, we will focus in on his desires and not our own fleshly desires. We are driven by God's nature. We're led by his spirit. And that late nature will not lead us to do evil things. When we let Christ live in us and we live in him, then we need to fulfill the righteousness. I'm sorry, then we have all we need to fulfill the righteousness and please God. We fulfill the law and commandments by love, not the to-do list. It's very tempting to do that. Romans 13, verses 8 through 10. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, or any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is fulfilling the law. Now we're going into our last paradox. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. Now we exist in these vessels of flesh, which currently houses our true life, which is our soul and our spirit. In 2 Corinthians 4, Verses 7 through 12, we have these treasures in jars of clay. You've all heard that. To show the, that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but driven to despair, 
but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death at work in us, but life in you. We still live in these earthly bodies, but we care around the spirit of Jesus, which guides and directs our eternal souls. We are placed our bodies in the possession of Jesus Christ in order that he lives through us, regardless of the cost to the flesh. That's a hard thing to understand for a lot of people. The flesh has really no meaning, but it is the vessel carrying around the spirit of God. We live by faith. We live by total trust in what the Savior will do. Romans 8, verses 5 through 11. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on things of the Spirit. Is, but but set, the, set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. In fact, if in fact the, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although your body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now the wording of this, uh, that last paradox that we've been talking about, Tom, could you back up just a couple of slides, two or three, and put that, there you go, thanks. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. The wording's a little bit tricky. Uh, is the text saying that we live by faith or by faith of the Son of God, Jesus Christ? Now, I'm no theologian, but I think it refers to both. No doubt our, our, our faith is key. Hebrews 11 is the faith chapter, which, which makes it very clear uh, how valuable faith was to the, the past saints and how important it is to you and me. Hebrews 11:6. Without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So our faith is important and quite valuable, but it isn't as important as the faithfulness of Christ. I debated on doing this, but this is my confession time for you. For years, I, I lived a joyless and, and fear-filled life. I knew the definitions of mercy and grace, but not the realities. 
Now, don't raise your hand because this is not a rhetorical question. Several of them, actually. Do you live in fear that Christ is going to return at the very second you committed a sin? Have you, has that ever crossed your mind? Even if we have one sin, won't we lose our salvation? Many of us live in fear like that. Somehow the balance sheet of the good and the evil, the, the, the good has to outweigh. Somehow we have to have complete mastery over our flesh and over our desires and over our evil thoughts and have that perfect timing because otherwise we're doomed. I refuse to live in that fear any longer. Here's a reality check, folks. We wake up with sinful thoughts. We go about our day with sin. We go to bed at night with sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 1 John 1.8 So when Christ returns, how many Christians will have their ducks in a row? Will we have just finished our prayers of confession? Will you time it perfectly so that you don't have a sinful thought in that twinkling of an eye? Who can be saved? Because it doesn't even look good for, for us based on the sin potential, right? Every second, you're, you're tempted with sin. Every second. Church, here's the good news. This is what grace is all about. Christ substituted his righteousness for my unrighteousness. I live in the flesh, and I still struggle with sin. But I abide in the faithfulness of Christ. This is why he nailed the law and the sin to the cross. It's not about what we do, folks, but it's more about who we are. We can remain in the old Adam and be the sinner who sins, or we can grasp the, the new nature and be the sinner saved by grace. Christ is the last Adam, and his spirit and his righteousness abides in us, and we abide in him. Grace tells me that Christ is faithful, and I have, I have complete confidence that nothing other than my own choice or my own unbelief can prompt me to walk away from the love of Christ. Romans 8 Verses 35 through 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am... Sure, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Church, 
Quit doubting your salvation with Jesus Christ. Quit doubting his faithfulness that he, he loves you. Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. I love how Paul concludes Galatians 2.20 by making a final statement about Christ. Who loved me and gave himself for me. Now when we began this lesson, uh, we, we talked about having an English lesson. We might as well just end with one now. If Paul wrote Galatians 2.20, uh, that entire passage, for my college writing professor, he would have probably received a C or a D. Take notice of the language used throughout the entire verse. I am crucified. I live, yet not I. Christ in me, the life I live. I live by faith, who loved me, gave himself for me. Effective writing rules say you would need to replace the pronouns with inclusive ones like we, us, our. But obviously Paul got it right with the Holy Spirit. And as leading to the final thought, many, many are, have argued in the past about the term personal savior. And we can think of Christ dying in the community sense for, for the world. He, he did. I believe that wholeheartedly. But I also believe that he died for me personally. Keeping that in mind tends to hold me a little bit more accountable and a lot more grateful. We will stand or fall before our own master Romans 14.4, I will not be held accountable for your sins, but I'll certainly be held accountable for what I did or didn't do myself. Romans 14.12. If you truly want to experience what Christ did for us, we can't help but make it personal. Christ loves me. He loves me more than all of creation because he died for me on that cross. He loves you the very same way. Christ would have gone to that cross even if it was only for me or only for you. Therefore, folks, I am crucified with Christ. We're going to sing a song of invitation here in a couple seconds, but... I just want to encourage you that you don't have to live in that fear anymore. That grace is there for you to partake. That grace is far more than you could ever imagine. It can cover every sin that you can even think of. Christ did it for you. He paid it all on that cross. He doesn't have to keep doing it over and over again. It's done. He's paid for it. He's given it to us. The only thing that you have to do is accept the gift. If you haven't done that, you have that opportunity. If you need prayers, if you haven't been living in the grace, 
the grace that's been offered to you. If you're trying to do it on your own, I pray that you would just accept the grace and learn that grace is what's going to get you there. Not your own efforts. That's not going to happen. We're never going to be good enough for that. But let Christ live in you and give you the strength day by day. So if you need prayers, you want to put on Christ in baptism, come talk to us, and we'll be here for you. Won't you come as we stand and sing?